Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm a formerly incarcerated person, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. In a few minutes, we'll get to my interview with Joe Lupino Esposito. But first, the news. Last week, I asked a question about people's favorite criminal justice reform books, and this resulted in a pretty good crowdsourced list. Uh, I will make sure and include it in the show notes, uh, so check it out if you're interested in trying to check out a few good criminal justice reform books. Uh, Obviously, the largest news of the week has been the insane cruelty that was being perpetrated by the Bureau of Prisons at the Metropolitan Detention Center in New York, in Brooklyn, New York. For those who haven't been paying attention, the MDC lost power for much of the last week during the polar vortex, and for some reason, instead of fixing it, they left prisoners locked down without light, heat, or hot food during one of the worst cold snaps in decades. Look, I usually do my rant at the end of the show, but I want to take a few minutes here to talk about this. The MDC is a federal detention center, which means it is the federal equivalent of what most of us know as a jail. In other words, most of the people who are detained there either have not yet had a trial or were sentenced to one year or less of time for a crime. There is little excuse for people who have not even been found guilty of any crime to be kept in such horrible conditions. It is really hard to fathom what was going on here and why they couldn't fix the electricity or the heat for almost an entire week. Unfortunately, most likely, once the light and heat are for sure back on, and we've heard that they are back on now, but there's still some uh, doubt about the heat. And supposedly, like I said, that happened uh, last night. Most people will go back to their normal routine and figure all is better. But as my friend Kathy Morris was explaining uh, all day yesterday on Twitter, this facility is awful with or without power and has been awful for a long time, calling into question, being called into question for everything from brutal conditions to sexual abuse. And perhaps equally important, in every state in the United States, there is a jail or there are jails just as bad as the MDC. As I've mentioned before, here in Michigan, there is the Macomb County Jail, a place that is so terrible that 19 people have died there since 2012. Unfortunately, I got to spend some time there myself. Prisons are terrible too, but compared to prisons, jails, because they are usually run by counties, are less transparent, have less funding, and are even more uh, are generally even more brutal. So we rarely hear about them. This needs to end, and we need to keep this story alive. Let me give you a small example of why. When the ordeal was over, Congressman Jerry Nadler said the following, Lights are back on at the MDC Brooklyn. Excellent news. I promise to look into why this happened and ensure that the BOP makes necessary improvements so there is not a repeat of these horrendous conditions. We must treat inmates with dignity and respect. Which sounds great, except that inmate is a pejorative term, the opposite of dignified and respectful. In addition, while he says he promises to look into why this happened and ensure that the BOP makes the necessary improvements so that there's not a repeat of these horrendous conditions, that suggests that these horrendous conditions were the only reason to look into the problems at the MDC, which is clearly not the case. I hope I'm wrong and that he will look a lot deeper, but we need to keep this this idea of jail reform consistent with the idea of 
reform for incarcerated women and for people in prison. The last thing here I want to say is thank you to all the folks who protested outside the MDC throughout this crisis. I've said for a long time now that the only silver lining to mass incarceration is that it is mass incarceration. This is one of the best recent examples of how regular folks, folks who just have a friend or family member inside a jail, or who are just so fed up with how our criminal justice system grinds people up and spits them out, that they stood together together for days and said, no more. This is going to increase over time. Departments of Corrections should understand going forward that while press outlets might continue to fall for their propaganda, these stories will no longer work on a larger and larger percentage of the population, as mass incarceration has meant that one out of every two people has a family member who is incarcerated. It means that less and less of us will fall for the nonsense that's coming out of departments of corrections. We need to demand that prisons and jails are no longer allowed to remain black boxes. These things happen because jails are largely kept in the dark and not just, I don't mean that just because of what happened this weekend, this week. Transparency will stop departments of corrections or county administrators from giving us the classic trio of answers. Number one, it didn't happen. Number two, it was all the fault of the incarcerated folks. Number three, we need, if we really want to fix this, what we need to do is clamp down on the incarcerated people's ability to communicate with the outside world which coincidentally is the only way all of us on the outside find out what is really happening inside these houses of horror because they don't let any information out. Okay. I think it's very important that we keep this issue in the main. I think it's very important that we remember on the panoply of things that we're trying to reform, that jails are often the worst of all the things going on in corrections in the United States. And I think it's really important that we don't let the energy dissipate from all the people around the country and all the people who stood outside in the cold, letting the people inside that jail know that we care about them. Okay, let's get to my interview with Joe Lupino Esposito of the Due Process Institute. Joseph Lupino Esposito currently works at the Due Process Institute. Before joining the Due Process Institute, he served as the manager for federal initiatives for Right on Crime and the Texas Public Policy Foundation. As the visiting legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Joe worked on, over, on the overcriminalization project, analyzing federal criminal laws. It was at Heritage where Joe first studied the extent of the problem, the overuse and misuse of the criminal law that he continues to work on today with the Due Process Institute. Joseph is a graduate of Seton Hall University School of Law, where he was editor-in-chief of the Circuit Review Legal Journal. He received a BA from the College of William & Mary, where he also co-founded the campus newspaper, The Virginia Informer. Joe, welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I always start by asking people to flesh out their bio a bit. How did you get from Seton Hall School of Law to the work you're doing now? Yeah, so I actually, uh, I always had an idea that I wanted to be involved in Washington somehow. I wasn't exactly sure how I wanted to do it. And uh, as I was leaving law school, I had a great opportunity to join the Heritage Foundation uh, through a fellowship working on this issue. And uh, for me, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the right side of the aisle. Uh, it was an opportunity to work with Ed Meese, who was obviously a, a big piece of the Reagan administration. I thought, you know, this is a really good opportunity to work on an issue that uh, I had a lot of interest in. 
uh, I actually went into law school intending to become a prosecutor. Uh, and when I started looking at the system and, and working uh, in various different uh, aspects, you know, attorney general's office, uh, a homicide unit in, in Newark, um, and working in drug court in Bergen County, New Jersey, I thought, you know, there's a lot more to be done here. Uh, and this is a really good opportunity to work with folks who obviously had seen both sort of the, the white hat side and also the defense side and working across the aisle and figuring out these big issues that seemingly everyone had agreed on uh, and started with this overcriminalization piece and this mens rea and criminal intent uh, part of that equation. And uh, that's an interesting bridge because you and I got to know each other a little by working together to help pass the First Step Act. Uh, luckily, we were on the winning team. Uh, lots, lots has been happening between uh, since then, uh, including the bar hearings, the release of the compassionate release guidance, and of course, the shutdown. Do you have any thoughts about uh, implementation of the First Step Act? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I'm hoping, you know, we're seeing a few things here and there. Uh, that there are some difficulties, particularly on uh, good time credits. It looks like that might have been a, a drafting mistake that we're hopefully the, the folks in the administration will find a way um, to, to take care of that. Part of the problem, of course, is that we're in the middle of the shutdown. So even some of those markers, you know, had they been uh, working diligently on them, it's still going to be very difficult for them to make. Of course, that's cold comfort for the folks who are in prison. Uh, but I think that if they kind of keep working through this and they're continue to work with advocates and continue to work with the folks in the administration who are really pushing for this. We can get some, some good changes done sooner rather than later. But I think uh, it's important for all of us to keep an eye on the implementation. I think for too often, uh, a lot of folks in Congress in particular, like the past laws, say, look at what we did, and they just assume everything is working perfectly. Well, again, I guess, especially at the same time, folks on the right are very quick to say, look, government isn't working properly. So let's make sure it is working properly. And let's make sure that the, the laws that we pass actually are going into effect and actually doing what we intend them to, to do. And do you have any thoughts about how we might uh, be involved in or people listening or whatever might be involved in trying to keep the spotlight on the issue? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what we've been seeing so far, I, I know you did a podcast not too long ago, I guess last week or the week before, uh, talking about this and really just keeping the pressure up uh, with legislators, particularly the people who were very involved in passing the law, both on the left and the right and in the House and the Senate to make sure that these things are moving forward. Um, and really just uh, kind of keeping the pressure up social media wise and just in, in the media as well, because I think, um, you know, mainstream media in particular was very interested in this sort of odd marriage between the left and the right on this issue. I think it's something that they will want to return to, especially as we remain in conflict on so many other issues. I think it will be important for us to make sure we have a handle on it and that, um, you know, I think people in general will be interested to see how this actually works out. And particularly for advocates, it's important for us to make sure that this is done right, because I think a lot of the pushback in some states that we will see, especially from my work with Right on Crime, we saw often was that a bill would pass and something would go wrong somewhere. It was, it was not accomplished the way it was intended. And suddenly now uh, it's very easy for the opposition to say, it's all a failure. Look at what you've done uh, when it was not <laughs> the intention to do that. So we want to make sure that everyone's on top of that and, and getting the, the right news out there of what's going on. Yeah, I think uh, you and I are kind of a product of that strange marriage. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so any goals uh, for what some have been referring to as the next step act from your perspective? You know, I think from, um, there's a few different ways to look at it. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the next step is the implementation. It is making sure all of the committees are filled, 
all of the, uh, the, the, the systems are set up correctly when it comes to the way they do the, the, um, the earn time credits that the programming is actually accomplished. So um, that's a bit of a cop-out answer, I know, but I think that is so important <laughs> that we make sure we get that. Um, so I, I think that's sort of a step one and a half, I guess you can say. Uh, second step, just looking at the political realities, I think it will be a lot of things that are a little more niche uh, issues, uh, that are a little more discreet, that are not sort of this big, bold, comprehensive reform. And look, I love that as, as much as the next guy, but I think um, the, the political climate is not going to allow for another big, comprehensive bill. Uh, and frankly, you know, when we look and we have this idea that we need to do giant, comprehensive bills, that's why they take 10 years. Uh, I, I'd rather start have us work on things that we can all agree on, left, right, or otherwise, and say, look, this is a problem. Let's fix it. So uh, some of the things we're, we're looking at, obviously, uh, not to jump to transition, but obviously some things on criminal intent that I think are good for the left and right that we, we want to talk about today. Um, but then also things like acquitted conduct sentencing, where for someone who goes to trial, um, you know, if they are found not guilty on several of the charges, but found guilty on even just one charge, a judge can take into effect all of the charges uh, as relevant conduct. So that's a problem that I think uh, seems very obvious to folks on the left as being problematic. But it was also a big problem for folks on the right, including Justice Scalia, who said, uh, you know, this is a, a case that they would want to take up. And unfortunately, uh, no such case ever. Uh, they, they were never able to grant cert on any cases relating to that. And we're hoping, excuse me, that uh, there are some cases that are coming up now um, that will address those issues. So uh, we're looking forward to that. And if it's not done by the courts, we'll start looking to the legislature to work on that issue. Um, so I think those are two sort of off the top of my head that I, that I know are, uh, I, I don't want to say small, but obviously they are smaller than doing something like the First Step Act where you're creating a whole new system. Uh, th these are things that I think a lot of people have been aware of as problems for many years. And I think everybody can work on those to get those done. All right. So let's kind of move to the intent question. I think uh, before I got arrested, I had a lot, even though I was fairly well educated in at least constitutional law, I was, uh, you know, I had my rose colored glasses kind of smashed uh, through the process in a lot of ways. I think one thing that most people probably believe is that the law is kind of inherently just and that if we haven't done anything wrong, we can't be found guilty of a crime. So let's start with what I, I'm sure most people listening will think sounds a little mystifying. Could you demystify the concept of mens rea? What is mens rea? Yeah, so mens rea is the criminal intent involved in a crime. So uh, if to get sort of technical and Latin on us here... Um, a crime traditionally is made up of two elements. It's the mens rea, which is the intent, and the actus reus, which is the bad action. So the whole concept of it is to avoid putting people in prison for accidents. I think that's sort of the most common way of putting it. Um, and it, it's been said before by Justice Holmes that even a dog knows the difference between being kicked and being tripped over. So uh, that's essentially what we're looking at here. We don't want someone who has accidentally done something um, you know, even just looking at the idea of a car accident, right? It's an accident. You don't probably intend to hit someone as you make a turn. Um, if you intend to, obviously, then it's a crime. Uh, and we have different levels of intent for different crimes. Uh, I think uh, to, to take it to the most obvious example, which is not what we're talking about generally in this area when we talk about reform, but to just give a good example, um, there's first degree murder, there's second degree murder, and there's manslaughter. And I think people, you know, watching one episode of Law and Order, you understand that entirely. 
Uh, that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about mens rea and criminal intent. What is that level? What should it be? I think there's sort of the holistic and the uh, philosophical thought of what ought to it be based on the crime. And then um, how is that written? How is that determined? And how will judges and prosecutors uh, interpret that when it comes to actually uh, prosecuting people? Okay, so somewhere along the line, we used to believe that people had to intend to commit a crime, or at least that that was a major factor in determining criminal intent. And over time, that has changed. Can you talk about the erosion of the hard and fast principle that people had to have intent? Absolutely. So I think there's sort of two problems with why we've gotten to the place we are today. One um, is simply just bad lawmaking. I think for a lot of cases, we see this in, in, in so many contexts that uh, somebody in Congress or in a, a legislature, even you know, a, a town council says, we have this problem. And to way, the way I want to show that I'm tough about it is that we will make it illegal. We will make it a criminal issue, not a civil issue, you know, not a fine, not, not some other um, penalty. We will make it criminal. That shows I'm serious about it. And if they don't know and they don't have a rule or anybody checking on them, particularly you know, if it is a town council or a state legislature where they may only have one staffer, if any staffers at all, they're just going to say X is a problem and uh, therefore – X is now illegal. If you do X, it, it is illegal. It does not account for that being an accidental act. Uh, and there's plenty of those in, in you know, thousands of contexts where something is not going to be uh, intentional. So some of it is just bad lawmaking. And I think some of it is also just the idea when, particularly in the federal context, where Congress has really abdicated a lot of their lawmaking to agencies and departments. And they say, look, we find that this issue is a problem. We, we think these three or four things are really obvious. And then they'll put something in to the effect of and anything else that the agency determines uh, is important for the enforcement of this law. Essentially, they can go ahead and create that law and do it through the regulations. And it'll all refer back to the, the main law that is put into the code that says it is punishable by X, Y and Z. Um, and if there's not a clear term there and if the agency goes a bit far afield from sort of the core issues, you suddenly have something that's a lower level of intent uh, than was really intended by Congress. And now you have a regulation that really is going to be difficult for someone to find that they are not, now are going to be held to a very low standard of. And those standards, depending on how they're interpreted, um, it comes down to the word. It, you know, I think some people would say, oh, well, if you knowingly do something, that, that means you intended to do it. Well, one of the examples that we can use is saying, well, did you knowingly um, you know, put something in the mail, for example. Well, I knowingly put it in the mail. I didn't know what I put in the mail was fraudulent, right? This is sort of the classic mail and wire fraud statute. So you, you knowingly put it in the mail. Well, is that sufficient to say that you knowingly committed this act if you're not applying knowingly to the fraudulent piece of the form that you put in the into the mail? And that's where things get a little tricky and that really gets down to a lot of technical legal issues of judge interpretation and how zealous a prosecutor wants to be when pursuing these issues. Okay. Uh, I personally remember sitting in my lawyer's office after I'd been uh, arrested and uh, I was like, well, this looks really bad. And it, it did. Uh, <laughs> but I said, well, I do, I do have some, uh, you know, some, some thoughts on affirmative defenses. And I started launching into, you know, kind of the, reasons why I theoretically, you know, I did what I did. 
And uh, I look up in the middle of it. He's just shaking his head. And I'm wondering what's going on. And he goes, you know, uh, there's this thing called strict liability law. (laughs) (laughs) And so I quickly learned that affirmative defenses in certain contexts don't really uh, matter that much. Can you explain a little bit about how this has become such a part of our criminal code? Absolutely. Right. So there are some things when it comes to strict liability that Congress has decided, look, we want this to be strict liability. We we want to say, even if you, you do it by accident, too bad, it is a crime. Now, uh, when we've talked about some reforms, there have been some issues talking about, well, if they affirmatively do so, that's one issue. But, you know, we want that discussion to really be there, you know, whether it's in the legislative record for a judge to look at or just in general, we want society to have that conversation to say, is this really something we want to say, no matter if you mean to do it or not, it is a crime. Um, and, and I think um, there are a lot of things um, we, we talk about, a lot of the, the issues that are sort of inherently wrong versus the issues that we've sort of decided as a society are wrong. So inherently, whether you want to talk biblical or otherwise, people know taking someone else's life is wrong. You know, use whatever whatever means and, and belief or non-belief you have. I think everybody, for the most part, agrees on that. But when it comes to, oh, well, releasing this type of, um, uh, you know, or better yet, I should say, you know, helping out a migratory bird and keeping it in the cage uh, because you're, you're reviving it back to health. Is that necessarily inherently wrong? No, we want to have a conversation about why it's wrong and to what level that should be wrong. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't really have those conversations. We just have these laws that are, use a very vague term or an overly broad term to talk about a criminal action. And next thing you know, you have these stories of, you know, a nine-year-old girl who found a bird hurt in her yard from a cat and they're trying to nurse it back to health. And suddenly somebody from, uh, you know, Fish and Wildlife is now moving in to, to make a criminal action against her. And it's, it's, it's preposterous. It's not what we intended to happen here. Strict liability uh, is becoming an issue because we don't have the conversation uh, on a wider scale to talk about what's inherently wrong and what everybody knows is wrong versus what we've decided as society is wrong. And therefore should just be no matter what happens, if you do it by accident or otherwise, you are going to be found guilty of it. So uh, I think and it gets to the greater issue of talking about uh, mens rea in general of how broad are these terms and how much do we really want to make this a criminal action versus a civil action? Yeah. So I think a lot of times I think of it in the terms of, you know, part of the social contract or at the core of the social contract for me is the idea that individual liberty should never be suspended lightly. I kind of feel like that's what sets the United States apart in that it doesn't just limit people's power. It didn't just limit people's power in regards to a sovereign. It limited a sovereign's power in regards to the people. Uh, Do you feel like the current makeup of the Supreme Court gives us any hope that we'll kind of move in a different direction in terms of kind of intent laws? You know, I think so. Justice Gorsuch in particular has been very strong on these issues. He is sort of no nonsense, a bit more libertarian leaning when it comes to those issues. Uh, We haven't seen too many of those come up uh, yet uh, since he's been on the court. But I do think in general, he is going to be leading the way on those issues. Um, I think in a lot of ways, as I mentioned before, Justice Scalia was a leader in many of those issues. Uh, I think that would surprise some folks on the left. You know, there were a lot of issues regarding um, search warrants um, and and other issues that he was really a leader on. And like I mentioned earlier, on on this issue of acquitted conduct sentencing, uh, 
you know, the confrontations clause, a number of different issues that I think uh, are not traditionally seen as conservative. But if you, you do catch it in the terms that you did, which is what I try to do, uh, particularly for, for my side of the aisle to say, look, taking away someone's liberty is, is a serious thing. And we need to, to do it carefully and really understand that, you know, you know, uh, you know, just saying we're putting them away for a few years because that's what we ought to do. That's something. It's not just, well, oh, it's not for it's not for 30. It's just for a couple. Uh, a couple of years is still still a good amount of time of someone's life. And it's taking away their liberty. And we should take that seriously. So that brings us to legislative men's ray reform. Men's ray reform. Uh, would you like to talk about what's going on in this area right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, have seen a few bills come up over the years, um, and it really traces back. I mean, obviously, uh, it traces back to <laughs> the, the, the times where we were talking about these things in Latin terms. But more recently, when we've been dealing with these issues, it's been on the context of overcriminalization in general. And what's going on now in Congress when it comes to mens rea reform and criminal intent reform is uh, a few different issues. And it traces back to the overcriminalization report that was done by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and the Heritage Foundation uh, about 10 years ago now, they took a look at the issue and looked at the different terms uh, of mens rea and criminal intent that were found in uh, the 114th Congress, I believe it was, or excuse me, the 112th Congress. And uh, they recognized that a lot of things that were being done was simply a lot of crimes were being proposed by members of Congress uh, and some of them with absolutely no regard to intent, and a good number of them were actually put into law in that session of Congress. So uh, members on both sides of the aisle, in particular Jim Sensenbrenner, uh, the Republican from Wisconsin, and Bobby Scott, a Democrat from Virginia, were behind uh, the overcriminalization task force. And they looked at these issues both from the regulatory side, from sort of the street crime side, really from from every angle to say, what laws are we putting into effect that are overly broad and things that should not be crimes and things that should be crimes, they should be better defined by their intent stat, uh, standards. So more recently, we've seen a few different uh, ideas pop up of how to deal with this. Um, there were some pieces in, in the early form of what eventually became the First Step Act, uh, the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act that talked about counting all of the crimes in the code. Um, I think it's good and bad when we look at those that idea because, uh, at least in the past, it has been found to be impossible for Congress or the sentence, Sentencing Commission or really anyone to be able to count all of the crimes that are in the federal code. So it's obviously a problem when it comes to uh, notice for the average citizen of what's actually a federal crime. Um, so that's one angle that we've looked at it on. The other one that's been pushed more recently is on the idea of default mens rea. And what this does is say that if a crime that is in the code has not been written to specifically say, we intend this to be one of those strict liability crimes in which we do not care what your intent is. If you do it, you are guilty. And we've decided that's what we're doing. If it does not have that level of intent for either the crime itself or one of the elements of the crime, a certain level of uh, intent will be applied to that element or to that crime. Um, and that's varied. Some states have done this, Ohio and Michigan most recently. Uh, Texas has had this statute on record, I think, since 1992 or 1993 uh, when they redid their criminal code. So uh, and a number of other states have it inherently in there to kind of protect against somebody not paying attention and letting something go into effect that does not have a, le a level of intent. So that's what we've been doing most recently. 
Um, and I think the other aspect that sort of touches on this, and I think is uh, definitely something that appeals to both sides of the aisle, is the type of action that's been done in Minnesota in particular, where they've done things like an unsession, where they've gone through, uh, I think, a day or two at the end of every session and have said, look, we have a lot of laws in the books that have not been used for a very long time. Let's just take them off the books. It's just good housekeeping. And we don't want some overzealous prosecutor or whoever out there to say, this is a crime. We're going to go after you for it. And frankly, no one has known about it and no one has used it for decades. So I think that's another thing that they haven't looked at in Congress yet. I think that's something that's definitely worthwhile. Um, it would be quite a bear to do at the federal level because of all the estimates of how many crimes there are. But I think it would be good housekeeping. And it's something that uh, folks on both sides of the aisle can get behind because, you know, we can take a little bit here and a little bit there from, from different areas uh, where people have more interest and that they're more familiar with it. And let's get, just go ahead and do it and really clean up the code and figure out ways that we can get rid of some of these silly laws that really shouldn't be crimes uh, at all. And if anything, should be civil penalties. And even that sometimes seems to be a stretch when you, when you take a second look at these issues. And that kind of gets us to some of the criticisms of mens rea reform. Uh, the first one is what you were just talking about. I think some people feel that by focusing on kind of the laws that, as you just said, are sort of silly and that never really get used, that you don't ever get to the real reforms that need to happen. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate. And I don't know exactly when this happened, but I, I recall, you know, when I was at the Heritage Foundation, I was there for a, a year long fellowship from 2011 to 2012. And it was pretty universal, uh, left, right and otherwise, that we needed to have mens rea reform. Uh, you know, there wasn't particularly, you know, one form of it that I think everybody had gotten behind, but it wasn't because it was a conflict. It was just a matter of figuring out, you know, the best strategy. Um, at some point that changed. And it was a really unfortunate context change where it suddenly became that mens rea and criminal intent reform is only for white collar crime. Um, I don't know if that was just that folks on the right were sort of overzealous and talking about the ideas of regulations being the problem and that the agencies were creating new crimes. That sounds more like a, a white collar context. Uh, but in, in no way would any of these uh, reforms I'm talking about focus solely on regulations or solely on white collar crimes. This would really be taking a look at the system as a whole, and that includes drug crimes. I mean, we see in the context of conspiracy law in particular, where someone who is going to be a, a low-level offender, it's a lot of the folks that we've talked about in the First Step Act, that end up getting caught up uh, as part of the conspiracy charge, and whether they were aware of it or not, um, they are suddenly now being hit with a much larger penalty because they have been found to be have the intent to be part of that conspiracy. Um, and, and that is unfortunate that it seems like folks on the left have gotten off of this because they've decided that this is an environmental issue uh, and that this is some sort of Republican plot to, you know, just throw out all of the environmental laws. Um, what's particularly funny about that, especially in the default mens rea context, is that most of the crimes um, uh, that people are found guilty of in the environmental context already have a level of mens rea on them. Uh, we can certainly debate over if it's strong enough or not, but they would not be affected by a default mens rea bill. So um, it's unfortunate that the, the conversation has gone in that direction, but I'm hoping that the, the conversation does change because we've seen uh, groups, including the federal defenders, say that we do need this change. We we need something to, to, to change when it comes to uh, criminal intent reform, and it's not just an environmental issue. They're saying a lot of the people that they serve 
uh, as federal defenders who are indigent and get hit with these federal uh, crimes are going to really benefit from a change in the law. And, and that's something that we want to work for. And particularly uh, where I'm at now at the Due Process Institute, our whole goal is to work on issues where the left and the right can come together. Uh, and I think this is one that had always been uh, where everyone was on the same page. And I, we really want to get back to that. So, yeah, uh, the, the regulatory part of it, you know, and I'll ask uh, another question about that in a second. But uh, there's also the I think what the fear is, is that, you know, if we get rid of, you know, if we spend our time in, like you said, an unsession, that people get rid of the less controversial things like uh, it's illegal to walk a duck across the street and not so <laughs> much about the other parts of it. Uh, did I mean, I get what you're saying about the regulatory part, but is there a kind of weird, perverse incentive for uh, people who would engage in this kind of process to tackle the really low-hanging fruit and then say, see, we reform the code and move on? That's certainly possible. Um, I think it, it is, it's part of a, a holistic approach. Um, you know, for example, in Minnesota, it, it wasn't a one-time thing. They did it. They do it every single year. So again, maybe that's a lot to ask of Congress. But I, I think uh, when I when I think about these things, I have that in mind that it would be part of what's what that overall package would be. And if you look in the, uh, I guess it would be the 114th Congress when um, uh, Bob Goodlatte uh, put forward and Jim Sensenbrenner put forward several bills in regard to this as part of a much wider package regarding sentencing and, and prison reform. They were doing things like clean up the code, which did have, you know, sort of the, the top 20 worst ones that we've all heard about, you know, uh, misappropriating the image of Smokey the Bear. That type <laughs> of stuff was all on the list that, okay, these are the ones we've been making fun of for years. Let's at least take care of those. But then they also had things regarding default mens rea and other pieces as well to say, look, this isn't the only way we want to handle this. We want to handle as much of this as we can and bite off as much as we think we can chew. Um, and I think that was the intention of the overcriminalization task force as well to say, look, there is a lot to handle here. Let's take on as much as we can and figure out the best way to handle it. Um, and, and I think um, in a lot of ways, the count the code type issues where we actually go in and try to figure out what crimes are out there. We, we do need to some degree to get a lot of these pieces on the table. So I think, you know, cleaning up uh, what a default mens rea term is a very good first step. And then at the same time, we're trying to draw out everything that's out there because uh, I think a lot of the opposition we got, particularly from folks on the left, was saying, you got to go tell us what, what the problems are when it comes to default mens rea. Well, I don't think that onus should be on sort of the, the advocates on this. That onus should be on the government. You need to prove your case. And whether it's your case of convicting people under these laws, um, sort of in this larger philosophical term, or if it's in the in the courtroom, you need to prove your case. We do not need to say, it just has to be easier for government to prosecute people. So why would we make these changes? It was a very weird position to hear coming from folks on the left. And that's something I hope that is not, and, and again, when I say the left, it's not everybody, of course. I think the people who have their eyes on really the civil libertarian issues and civil liberties have always understood that this is a problem no matter what the crime is. It, it shouldn't matter if it's a white collar context or a drug crime context. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, that's something that we want to kind of return to and say, this. it doesn't matter what the crime is. If there is not a level of default mens rea um, and it just says you are guilty and we don't, we, we didn't really have any thought about strict liability. We just decided you ought to be guilty for this thing. Um, that's wrong. And let's, let's, let's go ahead and fix that first. And then, and then try to take a bigger approach to say, you know, let's really tackle what the drug crimes ought to be um, and, and what all these other levels of intent ought to be for the various 
street crimes, regulatory crime, environmental crime, whatever it is. A second critique is kind of one that, uh, in a sense, uh, we already talked about a little bit because you said that there are certain crimes that uh, you know we decide are kind of above the the, the need for mens rea. Uh, and one weird, let me give you a crazy example. There is a guy in Illinois who has been in prison for uh, over 30 years uh, without ever being convicted of a crime because of kind of the idea that social safety kind of predominates. And so that's one example. Civil commitment, for instance, seems to me to be one example of a law that we've put outside of even the idea of culpability. And so I think one of the criticisms maybe of mens rea reform is that it leaves a lot of the most uh, controversial or should be controversial parts of the fight for kind of fundamental liberty concerns uh unaddressed. Is that fair or? You know, I, I can see that, that argument, but I, I do think that uh, once you start the conversation, and I, and I think this is sort of the same uh, argument we had with, when it comes to the First Step Act, once you start this conversation and recognize, and, and people who are totally unengaged on this, whether it's a member of Congress or a member of the public, if they have not been engaged on this issue, they might not even understand you know, the, the facts of the case and, and what we're really bringing forward as a problem. I think doing the initial reforms where you say, look, there is this lingering problem that is pervasive throughout the system. Let's figure out how to start pulling that back in. You suddenly get people more interested in it. And then you can engage people on the finer points and the more controversial points. And, you know, if that's where people split, that's where they split. But I think we're not even having that conversation to have a split if we don't start the conversation somewhere at the larger level where we're saying, look, this is a problem. Let's start tackling it sooner than later. Okay. And uh, Professor Benjamin Levin wrote a piece that's coming out uh, in the next, I think, month. Uh, He actually ends up concluding with you, but I thought he put this uh, part of the problem pretty well. So I'm going to read it and then kind of direct a question. The first critique of mens rea reform is simply that misses the point. Understanding this critique and evaluating its worth requires us to appreciate and agree on what the point is. That is, what's wrong with the current state of affairs of U.S. criminal law? There are many answers to that question. Perhaps it is uh, the astronomical prison population. Perhaps it's the length of sentences. Perhaps it's dramatic racial and socioeconomic disparities at each stage of the criminal process. Perhaps it's the sheer number of criminal laws. Perhaps it's the violence and militarization increased associated with policing. Or perhaps it's the economic costs of operating the carceral state. The list represents only a sample of issues that a reformist agenda might address. And as I've argued elsewhere, figuring out what problems we are concerned with is essential to meaningful discussion about criminal justice reform. But even without drilling down to the first principles, it should be easy to see that mens rea reform probably is not directly responsive to many of those concerns. While mens rea reform could still be a good idea, even if that were true, is anything of what he says uh, fair here? You know, uh, I I think in some ways it is, but uh, I would argue that, uh, again, I think there is a greater problem when we talk about these issues. I think like you, you stated perfectly earlier that we have to really analyze how and why we are taking away someone's liberty. And it is a first principles thing for me to say, these issues are so important that we need to understand why we've decided that this is a problem and what's sort of in someone's heart and what's in someone's mind. And that gets to the core of what we're talking about here. Um, you know, there is there are two parts of a crime, right? There, like I mentioned before, the actus reus, the action, and the mens rea. 
those are both conversations that can be held separately and together because uh, the actions themselves, obviously some people will say, look, the action of dealing drugs is not a problem because drugs should not be illegal. Well, that's, that's a conversation about the actus reus. Um, but at the same time, if you have a case, you know, like we've seen before, uh, where someone thinks they're dealing in marijuana, but they're actually dealing uh, methamphetamine, they didn't know it was in the package that they were, co- were the courier for. Well, you know, as, as some of the crimes are changing, we've decided that the actus reus of marijuana isn't as bad. Well, then we still have the problem of mens rea then that we need to re- refer back to um, and because that will not solve all the problems in that, that particular case. So um, as much as I mentioned before that I want to, especially in this Congress, take on some of the, the niche issues, uh, I do think that um, there is still a holistic approach or at least a holistic conversation that we need to have regarding these issues and mens rea really needs to be a part of it because otherwise we're not getting to the issue of what constitutes a crime versus what constitutes something that ought to be a fine or really no penalty at all. So uh, you already talked quite a bit about this, but I want to give you one. Uh, I just want to make sure you get every, every chance to talk about this because the the criticism you hear the most about men's ray reform is that it's a Trojan horse, which is really designed to roll back the regulatory state. Uh, I think uh, most famously, Elizabeth Warren put out a, a paper about this. Uh, I assume you probably have more to say about this. When it comes to taking on the regulatory state as a, as an issue of mens rea, um, uh, I've certainly heard that argument before. Uh, I think what it gets to really is what uh, we're trying to talk about is that we want Congress, you know, the, the elected representatives to be making the laws. We do not want this to be a bureaucratic issue. We don't want it to be an issue where, uh, lawmakers and bureaucracy are, 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 excuse me, not the lawmakers, but rather the bureaucracy are working on uh, putting people in prison. That's not what this ought to be about. Uh, and whether it comes from that context, whether it's giving more power to DOJ to make that determination or whether it's giving EPA more power to make that determination, either way, that's wrong. It should be the people who are accountable to the public who are, who are going to be the ones that are actually passing laws that are hopefully seriously considering the idea of taking away someone's liberty and not just simply saying, we'll leave it to somebody else to go clean up our mess because we just, we've been told this is important and we'll let the experts decide how to, how to handle it. So I, I don't think this is in any way an attempt to gut the regulatory state. I think it's an attempt to gut the, the, the overpowering government and the overpowering uh, system that comes down on people, no matter what their crime is when it comes to federal criminal law in particular, mm-hmm. where, there is essentially no way out. I mean, as I'm sure you've talked about before on this podcast, 97% of federal cases wind up being pled out because the deck is stacked against you pretty much no matter what your crime is in the federal system. And for that matter, in, in the state system as well. But in the federal context, it's particularly bad because it is just so large and so so overpowering the power that they have, uh, whether it's coming from an agency or from DOJ directly or whoever it is. So I, I think that's really... Um, I know for most people that work on this issue, that's really the core of what, what they want to talk about and what they want to tackle here. All right. So one last kind of, well, actually I have two last questions, but the the last one about directly about mens rea. Uh, when we were working on the First Step Act, I was kind of surprised at one point when Tom Cotton suggested an alternative, which was total mens rea requirements. Uh, I thought that was a little odd since his, uh, it seemed to me, that it would be more likely to ensure that many of the same uh, drug dealers that he was terrified of or scaring everyone about 
would likely to get out. <laughs> it would make it more likely, it seems to me, that they would get out because they wouldn't have had an intent to distribute fentanyl. Uh, is it possible that Tom Cotton came upon, stumbled upon a good idea for once in his life here? <laughs> Was I... <laughs> Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I guess credit where it is due here. I, he does have a very good idea when it comes to talking about mens rea reform. I mean, obviously, uh, in the last co- last several Congresses, Senator Hatch has really been the leader on that, um, at least on the Senate side. Um, and, you know, there is there is a need for somebody to kind of pick up that mantle and have that conversation. And if that's Tom Cotton, that, that's fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, to work with his folks again and, and work on this issue because it is so important. And it is an issue where... Yes, I mean, um, yeah, I, I can certainly sit down with him and, and let him know that 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 is, is something that could happen. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, he he may turn around and argue and say, no, that ought to be a strict liability crime, and you know, that's going to be different. Let's change the law and make it that. Well, let's let's have that conversation. And obviously, I would disagree. But uh, I think in general, if we want to have that conversation about what these terms ought to be, let's go ahead and do it. And I think that's what. That's really what my goal is when I talk about these issues. And I know from the, the Due Process Institute, that, that's what we want to do is say, this is such a large problem. We've never really had this conversation to look at what these levels of intent ought to be for the various crimes, no matter what context they are in. Let's do that. Let's have that conversation and let's clean it all up and really consider what ought to be a crime and what ought to be an, a, a civil penalty or, or otherwise. So one of the weaknesses of uh, doing this format is that I'm not really an expert on a lot of the issues that we discuss. I just try to read up as much as I can. So at, uh, my last question is usually to ask whoever the, whoever the expert is, what are some, what is a question I should have answered? I should have asked. Uh, I guess the, the, the one question I would say uh, that would be helpful to ask is uh, why is it that uh, Congress has given away this power? Um, and why have they sort of delegated to the agencies? Uh, I think that is a, a bigger question about lawmaking in general. That's a problem, which I think um, doesn't get brought up so much in this context. It is sort of more of your libertarian, conservative leaning topic, um, because at some point the administrative state has become a problem. And, and I don't want it to make it sound like this is some sort of attack the regulatory state issue. But in general, we really for Congress to be more effective as a lawmaking body that I think would not have such a low uh, approval rating, no matter who's in charge. Um, uh, you know, every couple of years we look at this and it's always bad and it always gets worse and it doesn't seem to matter who's in power. Uh, Congress has decided uh, to some degree it's good, right? That we want to make sure the experts are looking at these issues. So the agencies do have a role in that regard, but they've gotten to the point where they have these sort of write-offs at the end of bills that say they can just go ahead and enforce this however they please. The The problem has been that Congress has just delegated too much authority to people who are not accountable to the public. And that is a, especially concerning in the criminal context. And that's something we need to really focus on uh, from folks. Uh, I think it's been something that's picked up by folks on the right because it is seen as a regulatory state, you know, air quote issue, but it is such a huge problem uh, for every context, particularly in the criminal context, that we have just decided that we are going to let the agencies decide what they're going to do and not make them accountable to anybody. Because Congress can very easily say, I can't believe they're doing that over there without remembering that they are the ones that gave them the power to do it. And it is so important, particularly when it comes to criminal law, that they are just ignoring that fact. And that's something that I think 
people on both sides of the aisle should really be focusing it on and recognizing that government has gotten too large in this context and they are going after everybody's civil liberties, no matter what crime they've been accused of committing. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this and sharing your knowledge and for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me. I love the podcast and uh, happy to be a part of it. Yeah. Thanks again. Talk to you later. Thanks. And now my take. As I mentioned before, I kind of did my rant at the beginning instead of at the end. Uh, So I'm going to end with something that I saw on Twitter from Miriam Kaba, who uh, is someone I uh, have a lot of respect for. 10 million arrests a year, 11 million people cycling through U.S. jails each year, 450,000 currently in jail because they are too poor to pay pay bail, 1.5 million people in U.S. prisons. 70 million people with criminal records, millions of people deported yearly. Hashtag land of the free. Now, I'm still not 100% sure how I feel about mens rea reform, but I know I loathe strict liability laws. It seems like the arguments against reform are fairly weak and the reasons for reform are fairly strong, which probably means, sadly, in this politically polarized world, Nothing good will happen here. However, we need to do whatever we can to unify and change the system. We need to stop putting so many people people away, and we need to help get as many folks out as we can. Those statistics that Miriam shared above are staggering, especially in a country that at least purports to be a place where freedom and liberty are supposed to thrive. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and Robert Alvarez, who's been helping with the website. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.